Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, and this is Album Clash. I am Tim. And I am Kev. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show. This is the second part of our third clash. So last week we went through Johnny Cash's fantastic live album at Folsom Prison. And uh, Kev, tell people what you are going to be taking us through today, please. So uh, this week we will be going through uh, the iconic and famous uh, live al- uh, Aretha Franklin live album, Amazing Grace. Yeah, and I'm really, really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. But before we do that, I would like to introduce a new feature to Proceedings, if I may. Oh, a new feature. Well, I mean, we've debuted. So this will be at least two features within our within the podcast. I mean, this is this is starting to look as though we actually know what we're doing. I'm I'm, I'm against this kind of thing. We we need to keep it more ramshackle. <laughs> Hang on, we've not done the feature yet. We might decide it's rubbish and decide to scrap it. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> okay, we will we will try with 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 the concept of features then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's you know, baby steps. Uh, so what I'd like to introduce is I would like to give homage to the uh, music video, if I may. To, you know, any particular video we want to give credit to, talk about something that annoys us, something that we think is good. I'd just like to, to, to have, a, have a bit of chat about videos, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, we are we are two individuals who grew up with the in the 80s, so the chart show on ITV was a, was a staple. Of, um, when, uh, when satellite TV became much more readily available in the UK, MTV, and, well, not really VH1, because that was for your dad, but, like, um, certainly music videos became much more important and were, were huge parts of, of our lives. I can remember my cousin Claire um, staying up till midnight to tape uh, the Thriller video off, I think it was Channel 4, like they debuted it at midnight and she stayed up to tape it and then re-watched it load. So music videos are a big part of our lives. Definitely. So we're going to call this feature... Video killed the radio star. Boom. So what I'd like to talk about is the video for Super Furry Animals uh, single, um, Play It Cool. So that was the third single from their second album, uh, Radiator, released in 97. And the reason I want to talk about the video is because when I saw it in 1997, it blew me away. So Kev, have you seen this video? I mean, I I will I will be open and honest with with the listeners to say that it wasn't something that I was particularly aware of um, at the t- at the time. Um, it has only relatively recently um, come to my attention, and I'm a little disappointed that I hadn't seen it before before relatively recently. Because had I seen it at the time, I would have been absolutely buzzing. Yes, exactly. So uh, the premise of the video is the band are 
playing on a, a PlayStation, a PlayStation 1. Uh, yes, kids, there was once a PlayStation 1 all the way back in 1997. Uh, they are playing the game Actua Soccer 2. And uh, they're playing, I think it's Wales versus Brazil. The band, or to be fair, uh, Griff, the lead singer, gets sucked into the television uh, and then starts playing the game in there. And the graphics, so it was actually, it was done with the guys that, that made the game. And the graphics for 1997 were absolutely incredible. They were mind-blowing. Firstly, Actua Soccer 2 was an absolutely boss game. <laughs> and secondly, seeing that in a music video uh, for an indie band in the 90s was awesome. I also got great enjoyment from uh, within the video, uh, Giant Mita Delta. I apologize for <laughs> any listeners who aren't really into football, but we're going to have some, there may be some niche football chat here. And seeing a, seeing a huge Mita <laughs> Delta was a very exciting thing for me to see. Definitely. So there's, there's a couple of things I just want to pull the video up on, however. So, firstly, when Griff get, first gets sucked into the game, he's playing for Wales, but doesn't have a Wales kit on. So, sorry, referee, stop the game, because you can't, you've got to go and put a, a kit on, otherwise you can't be on the pitch, surely. <laughs> it's non-regulation clothing. Exactly, exactly. He's got no number on his jacket. What happens if he needs to get, if he's booking him? It's, it's anarchy, I tell you, anarchy. Warning for the fella in the parker. <laughs> exactly. The next thing that I want to call the game up on is when he's first in the game, he starts tackling his own teammates. Like, come on, you're going to get subbed if you carry on that sort of lark. Yeah, I was I was very disappointed with his teamwork there. Um, you know, the the boy the boy Reese has come on. He's made a difference to the game, but you know, you can't be tackling your teammates. It's it's unprofessional, really. <laughs> it very much is. Yeah, uh, and finally, uh, and perhaps the most unrealistic thing in the video is once they get their shit together and start playing. So at the time he goes into the game, I think Wales are 3-0 or 3-1 down to Brazil. And by the end, Wales have beaten Brazil 4-3. Now, bear in mind, this is 1997 Wales. And I think at that time, Bobby Gould was Wales manager. And I'm sorry, there ain't no way that Wales team's beating Brazil 4-3. Doesn't matter if the Super Fairies are playing for them or not. It ain't happening. Well, yeah, so if you think 97, so that's a Brazil with Rivaldo, with the original Ronaldo, um, going up against Mark Pembridge and Gruff Rees. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that that's going to be the result, even if you're playing it on easy. <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, uh, people who tune into this show to listen to uh, chat about albums and music. I'm not enjoying this 90s football chat. Yeah, well, that's that's quite enough of that. But um, I wanted to talk about it. It's a great video. I loved it in the 90s. Uh, I still love it now. Uh, it's on YouTube. Go and have a look at it yourself. It's a great song from a great album from a great band. Yeah, and I I was I was very happy to um, to dis- discover it relatively recently. So it's a very evocative of the 90s video as well. 
so even if you, if you just want to bathe in some nineties nostalgia, it's a crack and one to 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 watch as well. It is definitely okay. So yeah, that is video killed the radio star. We move on to the second album in this clash, which is Kevin. So the second album in this clash is Amazing Grace um, by Aretha Franklin. It was recorded over January the 13th and 14th in 1972 at New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in LA, originally released as a double LP on Atlantic Records in June 1972. So in terms of the background of this album, it's essentially a confluence of events, really. Aretha had not long signed with Atlantic Records, and they were looking to obviously promote promote the artist and everything that they'd signed up. Um, oh, Happy Day had become a big a big sort of crossover hit in 1969 and had made gospel, because Oh, Happy Day is a gospel song, uh, much more mainstream. And Warner Brothers, and this is going to become important, were planning a concert film and hoped that a concert film might do for gospel what Woodstock had done for pop, which was an interesting concept. <laughs> and there were some issues with that, which we will we will certainly get into. There's some debate in the history of, of this album, whether it was Jerry Wexler, who was uh, the producer at Atlanta Records, or Aretha, um, who came up with the idea for, for the actual album. And there's some debate about whose idea it was to bring in King Curtis, who was um, the saxophonist who played on Respect. It was his essentially his band, and that included... Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey, and Cornell Dupree, three fantastic musicians um, that, uh, who were playing in the backing band. Certainly, it was definitely Aretha's idea to bring James Cleveland in, who was her childhood mentor, um, and he supplied the, the choir and appointed Alexander Hamilton, who was only 27 at the time, to direct the choir. And he is <laughs> certainly, if you if you ever get around to watching the film of this, um, he is a very charismatic uh, character. So I think it's worth saying a couple of things about, about James Cleveland. So you mentioned uh, he was Aretha's childhood mentor. And as you say, he, he'd spent time in the 60s working as the music director at the New Bethel Baptist Church, where Aretha's father, who we'll talk about as we go through the album, Clarence Franklin, was the pastor. James Cleveland himself was the first gospel star to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, he founded the Southern California Community Choir, which is the choir that, that sings on this album. Uh, and it's worth saying about, about the choir themselves, they were just a regular group of churchgoers. I mean, regular group of fantastic singing churchgoers. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, so uh, Mary Hall, who at the time uh, was 22, she was a member of the choir, says of the rehearsal sessions, the Reverend just said, you be at rehearsal and you be at rehearsal. I couldn't believe I was getting ready to sing with the Queen of Soul. It's still one of the greatest moments of my life. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. Yeah, I mean, being on being on this record and getting to sing with Aretha when she's at the arguably the peak of her powers. And as you said, Alexander Hamilton, really charismatic choir director. He said uh, in, a, in an interview after the event, I would ask Aretha what she was definitely trying to get in the song. She would say where she wanted the licks, and then I would make sure it happened. So the um, as as I said, um, it was recorded over over two nights. First night wasn't wasn't empty, but it wasn't as well attended as the second night when word got out that Aretha was there and performing. So for the second night, Aretha's uh, father, 
as, as Tim mentions, Reverend Franklin um, came, gospel singer Clara Ward, and Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts, who were recording Exile on Main Street um, in LA at the time, uh, turned up to the second night of the performance and shoehorned their way into the, into yeah. the movie. So Mick Jagger, not content with appropriating black culture in the Rolling Stones music, decided that he wanted to have himself a little piece of Aretha's history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, I really like the Rolling Stones, but uh, again, watch the film and you'll see there's a shot of Jagger towards the back at one point and you think, oh, there's Mick Jagger because the camera has to zoom on him and Charlie Watts from quite a distance. And then later on, it's like, oh, he's right at the front. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So in, ter- in terms of the film, there was some debate about who, who was going to be the best person to direct it. Um, they eventually... Uh, decided upon Sidney Pollock, who was the director of They Shoot Horses, Don't They? There were some reservations about using him as he'd had no experience of doc- documentary filmmaking, but the the Hollywood star power held out and he was, he was appointed to it. Sidney Pollock would later go on to win an Oscar, I think, for directing Out of Africa. But this time, as, as Kev said, he was very much the up-and-coming Hollywood star and as we will talk later, it was perhaps not the best choice. Yes, th- things occurred, but we will come on to that. So before we get on to talking about the album, we will discuss the artwork as we traditionally traditionally do. It's not the most exciting album cover you'll ever see. So there is a picture of, of Aretha. There's a lovely font, lovely typeface um, of her, her name. And the list of the songs down the right-hand side, really, that, that's pretty much it. So the, the font itself is classic 1970s black exploitation style font is what I've written down. It looks brilliant, the font. Yeah, as you said, as we said with At Folsom Prison, it's not a particularly exciting album cover. I think Aretha sitting on that, uh, those sort of steps, she oozes class in that photograph. Without question. And as I say, the font just like, yeah, it's it's brilliant, but not much to say about it, really. Again, as we always do, talk about how we discovered the album. So how did you discover Amazing Grace? So essentially, I am a blue-eyed, blue-eyed soul boy to some extent. The, so from probably about the age 14, 15, I got into Stevie Wonder big time. And from Stevie, I went into all kinds of different avenues. And Aretha Franklin is a is a well well known mainstream soul artist, and so she's someone I came across very early. And around eighteen nineteen, I came across this album, and I was blown away, absolutely blown away by it. Um, and I. I, I'd always struggled to get a copy of it. It was once the digital revolution sort of occurred, it became much easier to get hold of music. And like I managed to get hold of a copy of this album and have cherished it ever since, really. So for me, it was quite a bit later. And to my shame, I suppose, I have to admit that, that I wasn't really into soul music until I was well into my, well, possibly even into my 30s, actually. Two things got me into soul music. One, was you, and you'd, you'd been on for a long time. I knew your love for Stevie Wonder from when we were living together, as, as we talked about earlier. 
And uh, the other thing was was a film which I've loved for a long, long time, but but have never chosen to delve deeper into the music. It's the Blues Brothers, in which Aretha Franklin appears herself. Um, and as as we will as we'll get on, uh, at least one of the songs on this album is is actually sung on on the Blues Brothers. Indeed, indeed, it is. Um, so I think the first time I heard this album was within the last five years. I don't know exactly when, but it's it's quite recently. And like you, I was blown away. I think one of the things we have to say before we start going through it, and if you see the, the documentary film, something that James Cleveland says before the start, before Aretha comes on onto the stage, it's a church service. It's not a concert. It is a church service. It is a... Yeah, yeah, it's it it is it is a religious service, and I mean that's the perfect way to to lead into the into the opening song, um, which is "Mary, Don't You Weep." The song itself it's a it's an old old slave spiritual song believed to originate from before the Civil War. It tells the story of Mary of Bethany pleading to Jesus to raise Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. Also references other elements from the Bible, so the Exodus story. The passage from the Red Sea, so so there's a reference to Pharaoh's army got drowned dead. But this 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 opening song, it's a fantastic opening. Does give you that feeling you you are in a you are in a gospel gospel church. The choir is is amazing. Aretha, like first song in, is absolutely peerless. And I I wrote down as as an opener, it tells you we're in for something special. We're in for something good here because this is this is how we start. So I've written something very similar. I, I I said it's a real indicator of what's in store. You know, start as you mean to go on. It's a rousing. It's 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 quite slow, but it's a rousing opening. Uh, as I said a few times for at Folsom Prison, the band and the choir just drive the song forward, and Aretha just just plays tunes all over it. It's great. The only other thing I have noted about this song, so it's been recorded several times, including once famously by seminal gospel group the swan silvertones and apparently that version uh, was what inspired paul simon to wrote bridge over troubled water interesting but uh, but yeah this is just as we've both said it is an indication of what's to come so if this is your thing you're in for an absolute treat so f- from that we go into a medley um so it's precious lord take my hand which segues into you've got a friend Precious Lord, the lyrics were written by Reverend Thomas Dorsey. Um, apparently it was Martin Luther King's favourite song. And he often got Mahalia Jackson to sing it at civil, right rally, civil rights rallies. Aretha also sang it at Mahalia Jackson's funeral. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And the way it transitions into these, obviously the secular You've Got a Friend, the Carol King song, it's a wonderful piece of work. Aretha is transcendent. It's stunning. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, really. It is. So I've, I've written, it's, as you said, it seamlessly blends a gospel song with a secular pop song. There is no, there is no transition actually and that's that is to the credit of of the uh, arrangement it is really uplifting it, it's so inspirational and oh i'm having a lovely old time here <laughs> oh god yeah we're, t- we're, we're two songs in and set, settle in because 
there's some there's something special occurring from that we go into a, another traditional gospel song this one was written by uh, w herbert brewster it's old landmark so this um is actually performed by james brown and james cleveland from uh from this choir um in the blues brothers film itself the the thing is when we when we're talking about this album it's really difficult to we're, we're going to run out of superlatives Aretha absolutely wails on it. The band are so tight, and the ba- the bass playing is so good. It's oh, I mean, three songs in, and I, I do you know what? I could, I could just I could happily just listen to them three before we get in before we get into the depth of the album. Yeah. So, uh, diversion from the Blues Brothers is the first one I heard of this song and i really like that version i think i think james brown is it does a does a great well i mean J- james brown's not about not a bad fella um, at the uh, no in, well not a bad singer i think there's, there's <laughs> uh, you know we, we we won't need to talk about his character and look one thing we should have said at the start of this class it's delightful that for once we don't have to talk about any shit bags in relation to covid so let's not go down the route of or just general nobody nobody behavior really <laughs> um, so you said we're going to run out of superlatives i'm just going to read to you my notes if you don't mind oh yes double exclamation mark i have to sit on my hands to stop from clapping along but then my foot starts tapping <laughs> this is block capitals underlined in red absolutely glorious and it is it is just fucking wonderful oh without question so i've got to say because i'm going to come back to this later and we said on an earlier clash i'm not a religious man and so uh i would not be necessarily predisposed to listening to a gospel album but there is something inherently joyous in listening to a congregation celebrating their faith it's it's so uplifting yeah that's that's the thing so i'm i am from a religious background i'm from a from a catholic background and i can honestly tell you from all the times that i i got taken to to mass and everything like that a catholic ceremony is nowhere near as joyous as this 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 sounds like absolute fun. Um, just embracing the joy of of your faith and everything like that. And like I'm I'm not a religious person anymore, but it's it's just uplifting and inspiring, really. Yeah, inspirational. Like I completely agree with. <laughs> so to what to what you just said, I'm reminded of a line from, and this is extremely juxtaposed to Aretha Franklin, the Kevin Smith film Dogma. <laughs> which is a good film actually i really yeah, like that film. the uh, muse who's played by salma hayek when she's talking to uh linda fiorentino's lead character i know the line you're going to come out with now she says uh you catholics don't celebrate your faith you mourn it and then you can uh, which there's some truth i'm not i'm not oh a- yeah the, the, there's without question there is that definitely gets to the um it's part of the the heart of um, Catholicism. Really, it's you go you go because you have to, as opposed to you go because it's a it's a it's a joy. Yeah, and listen. So it's fair to say, dogma 
was fairly controversial. It came in for some criticism from the church and the Catholic church in particular. We're not going to get into that. This isn't a film review podcast anyway. Um, and uh, I'm, well, as I said, I'm not from religious upbringing, so I can't speak to Catholic religious ceremonies. Kevin can. But you contrast what you've said and what others have said around Catholic ceremonies and Catholic worship to what you hear in this. And as you say, this is joyous. This is, let's come on, let's go to church. I can't, I, I want to go. I want to go to church. I wish I believed in God because it sounds ace. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that like this is the only the only fun bit of a Catholic uh, mass, um, which is God like praise be with you, God be with you, where you got to shake hands and like you basically went around shaking as many people's hands as you possibly could. That was the only fun bit of church. <laughs> That's definitely one for the Catholics there. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I'm sorry. I, I've got nothing. <laughs> So um, we'll we'll move on from. Uh... So, well, the, the only other thing I've got to say about the old landmark is, as with many songs on this album, that as Kev said, the traditional gospel songs. This one's been recorded by loads of loads of people, including Clara Ward, as you mentioned, was at this performance on the second night. The Staple Singers uh, and uh, Dion Warwick. So um, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 a popular tune. Yeah, um, without question. So the 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 next song, um, "Give Yourself to Jesus," um, it's a good choice, uh, really, to calm things down after the first the first three songs, um, balance it balance it out well, and basically Aretha starts preaching mid song. It, it's it's again, it's really well done. Um, the, the the musical part of it, um, I think, and I'm. I'm guessing you weren't necess- you weren't necessarily bang into the preaching part of it. Yeah, but we are we are essentially in a church service. So that's as I exactly you're right. And as I said, as you said, this is a religious ceremony first and foremost. Uh, so I I'm not criticizing it, but for me, Aretha saying the Lord's Prayer over the choir singing halfway through the song didn't resonate with me. It's not my favorite song on the album, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not the target audience. So that's absolutely fine. What I would say is this perhaps more than any other song on the album is one where you can absolutely see Aretha Franklin's heritage and hear Aretha Franklin's heritage as a gospel singer. Without question, yeah. So then, uh, so that's the end of the first disc. So then we start side two with a absolute banger, um, "How I Got Over," uh, written by Clara Ward. So according to Clara Ward's sister, Willa Ward, the song was inspired by by an experience they'd had whilst travelling in the segregated South in the fifties. A group of white men. Enraged by a group of black women riding in a caddy, having the sheer audacity to actually have earned money to be driving a caddy, uh, surrounded the car and taunted them racially. And that's that's not a golf reference, by the way. <laughs> C- Cadillac. No, no, because obviously golf wouldn't wouldn't have. Any, <laughs> it would, they any would not. They would not let African American women play golf in Georgia. No chance. 
<laughs> so the uh, the the women were rescued when Gertrude, who was the mother of the of the group, um, feigned demonic possession, which led to the men fleeing. Apparently, in terms of this song, it's such a great all round performance. The band, Aretha, the choir, everything together. It's exactly what I want. It absolutely fizzes. It does. So I've written. I'd read the, the, the same the same story. So, firstly, like what an awfully harrowing experience that must mm-hmm. have been. Horrible. But to write such a joyous and uplifting tune coming out of that really speaks to someone's mental strength. And again, their deep-rooted, strong religious faith. It's it, glorious. Glorious. Yeah. It, it, so I've written, uh, it's another one where I couldn't stop tapping my feet a- along with the song. Yeah. This is one where the, the backing band comes to the fore for me. The drumming is phenomenal. There's some, there's some great conga work. Oh, the bass. The bass. That, that, yeah. The, just walking all the way up and down this. Oh, it's it's great. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I mean, a bass that filthy should not be in church. <laughs> no. And I, and I realized for the listeners that I didn't actually say any words then. I just made several quite concerning noises. Um, the bass guitar and the drumming on this track is phenomenal. So I mentioned uh, for at Folsom Prison that the album was was preserved by the uh, the Library of Congress. The uh, Clara Ward version of this song in 2018 uh, itself was added to the uh, National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. So it again has been seen as a, a work of, of significance. Yes, a, a landmark song. So after that absolute banger, we go to What a Friend We Have in Jesus, a traditional hymn from 1868, based on a poem written by the preacher Joseph Scruen, I think that's how I say it, uh, to his mum in Ireland whilst he, he was in Canada. And what what I wrote here was it's, again, it's beautiful, particularly the way it comes back and it builds back up. So you have the initial first movement of the song, and then you have this, this middle eight where it sort of goes down and then they pick it back up and it builds again. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. It is phenomenal. So apparently it, it was also uh, it, soldiers in the First World War would sing a version of this song called When This Lousy War Is Over, which I find quite, um, well, we relate back to what we were talking about, Outfalls and Prison, Gallows Humour. It, it, it's, it's another nice driving gospel song. It's nothing too special, but compared to other tracks on the album at least, but I really like it. I think this is one, so I said in the last one, the backing band shines through. This is one where the choir, oh god, uh, possibly for the first time in the album, the choir, you can really tell, Christ, these guys are talented singers. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd say the, the the first song on the album, the the, the choir, the choir yeah. has a has a key element, but this is the the next song where they they really come to the fore. Really, the last thing I'll say about this, this is another one that's been recorded by everyone and his dog. So I'm not going to read out everyone. I'm just going to read out versions that I'm specifically going to seek out and listen to. Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, Ella Fitzgerald, Glenn Campbell, Amy Grant, and Ike and Tina from their album The Gospel According to Ike and Tina. 
I mean, I'm intrigued by by the last one. Definitely, I've never I've never heard that album. Yep. Um, that's an eclectic group of um, people, really. It is. So yeah, it's it's this is a really good song, but I don't have anything massively else to say about it. Okay, and we we come to the next song, which is Amazing Grace. Um, I would hazard a guess that the majority of listeners will have heard some version of this song, whether in a church, school, whenever. It is an eponymous song, really. Written by John Newton in 1772. It's an eponymous song. Maybe that wasn't the word I was searching for. I don't think so. <laughs> ubiquitous? Ubiquitous, yes. Um, that, that seems uh, to be the, the correct word to use. Sorry, um, I'm a I'm a grammar dick. Do you know what? We, we'll keep that in. That's fine. Yeah, stay in. Fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, it is. Go on, carry on. So in 1748, Newton was on a, on a ship just off uh, County Donegal in Ireland. A violent storm battered his vessel so severely that he called out to God for mercy. Now, the incident started his spiritual conversion and eventually Amazing Grace, he wrote, which was part of the only hymn, uh, the only hymns, which is a very important hymn book that uh, allowed a lot of old English hymns to be sort of transported round, round the world and became part of the second second wave of spiritualism in, in America. Newton himself was involved in the in the slave tra- in the slave trade at this time he later became an abolitionist but it's not believed that the the song has even though you can draw parallels it's not believed that this song has links he had not become an abolitionist at, at the time of writing is, is my understanding so um, i'm glad you rec- you said that so the, the ship that he was aboard uh, when he had the, the spiritual awakening was a slave ship uh, so we have to acknowledge that, uh, but as Kevin said, he did he did later become an, an abolitionist. So just to, I, I apologise to interrupt you there, but we finally got our first mass, massive shit out in the, into album class. We have to have at least a reference to a shit house. And being a slave trader doesn't matter if you became an abolitionist; you were still a shit house. Yeah, yeah, and by all accounts, he was a shit house. <laughs> <laughs> so we we can definitely uh, nail our colours to the mast that album clashes anti-slavery. <laughs> the, the song, the hymn, is apparently autobiographical. So he was, as, as, well, obviously he didn't use this term, but he was a bit of a shitbag. Him, and they admitted himself uh, often getting into trouble and and, and uh, not on a on a path of righteousness, one might say. Uh, and uh, he saw the sparing of his life in the storm as a sign from God, and so chose the path of of Christ and wrote "Amazing Grace." As say, as an autobiographical hymn. As Kevin said, he wasn't an abolitionist at the time, or so. Although this song has taken on a significance as being a, a, an anthem for uh, the enslaved. And that's good. Uh, it in itself was apparently not written as such. So uh, yeah, let's let's move on. So yeah, we we we've talked we've talked a lot about um, the history of the song because all I mean all I all I have written down um, and I wish I could I could actually show Tim my notes. It just says unbelievable performance. That's it. 
that's that's all I could write down because I was just agog and aghast by the sheer performance of it by Aretha. It's un unfucking believable. Yep, I don't have much to say. <laughs> the only thing I would say, and this is a question, and again, this is me talking. At ten minutes and forty-five seconds, is it a little much? So interestingly, like, so I was going to refer to this in the next song, which is, um, but I'll I'll come on to this now. So I read the John Lando's original Rolling Stone review from uh, when the album was released, and whilst he is generally positive in terms of the album, he he says the the major flaw he found with it is that it's laboured and overworked through repetition and a contrived slowness that exhausts the listener. Whilst I don't necessarily agree with that per se, I think there's possibly a... He's got a point to make around Amazing Grace. It's it's probably a bit too long um, and could do with a little reining in. But I'm being... Hypercritical. Yeah. The, As was I when I asked the question. I love this. I think it's brilliant. But... Yeah. It, 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 if we're looking at it with our sensibilities and trying to review the album and everything... It's, it possibly is a little too long, but I will forgive it because her performance is fucking unbelievable. Yep. Um, so the, the only other thing I have to say about this, and it's just to link it back to Folsom Prison, Johnny Cash recorded a version of this song in 1975. And that, again, comes back to what you were saying about Johnny Cash, is that through the late 70s and, and through the 80s, his output became very religious. Yeah, uh, much like Dylan. Yes, indeed. But and um, when both them found God, they found uh, bad songs. <laughs> yep, but we're not talking about Johnny Cash or Bob Dylan. We're talking about Aretha. <laughs> so um, that is the end of side two. So then we start the second disc of the double album. So the start of side three. Uh, the song is Precious Memories. Again, a traditional gospel song. It's credited to JBF, JBF Wright in 1925. This song has been recorded by, and I have just mentioned his name, uh, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, and the granny's favourite, Daniel O'Donnell. I'm so glad you said Daniel O'Donnell. It's I've written Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> and Tammy Wynette, to be fair. You didn't say Tammy Wynette. I ignored Tammy Wynette because I wanted the punchline of Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> um, it's it's a again, it's a it's a lovely, a lovely song. Um, well done. I, I haven't got anything more to say because I'm as I say, I'm running out of superlatives. So I, uh, I I really like some of the lyrics in this. Uh, so in particular, Precious Memories, Unseen Angels, Sent From Somewhere to My Soul. So if, uh, as someone, as I said earlier, I'm not religious. I can feel something in those lyrics. It, 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 to me, it speaks to reminiscing about a childhood, about times gone by, about uh, about precious memories. I absolutely love this song and I love that I love the length of it actually in this in this case I think James Cleveland's 
backing vocals sound fantastic. Backing up Aretha, it's just great. Um, so then, then we move we move on to climbing higher mountains, um, which I couldn't actually find a huge amount about the original the original song. I'll, ha- I'll have to admit. Um, do you- no. Do you, do you know anything about about the background I, of it? I, I, I don't. So I researched as well. I I couldn't find any. So I'm assuming that your research is as in depth as mine here. We're not going to uh, necessarily um, the archive libraries of the Bodleian Library. We're looking on Google. Yeah, um, Google did not tell me a huge amount. No, um, no I can't find a, any reference to any other version other than the one that's on this album. So uh, sorry, guys. So what 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 we can say about, or at least I can say about it, that it's certainly in, in my my opinion, it has a great beat to it. The bass work is fucking great again. It's phenomenal. It's, I mean, and it's a really good up tempo number after the last after the last couple of songs as well. Really, yep. really picks picks things up again. Yep, I I, I have nothing more to add. So uh, we then have uh, remarks by C L Franklin. As, as we've talked about before, that's Aretha's fr- father, who was a friend and supporter of Martin Luther King. And I think the, the remarks, certainly in, in terms of what he goes on about, so John Lando, who I've all, already referenced his, his review in Rolling Stone, he says that the album itself, it often sounds like a homecoming celebration for Aretha's re- return. And the remarks by Reverend Franklin reinforce that. Uh, you know, So he, he finishes by saying... If you want to know the truth, she's never left the church. And it reinforces that that feeling of it's it's a homecoming celebration. Everyone is loving the fact that Aretha's come back home and is doing the tunes that she grew up with. And yeah, that's that's all I've really got to say about it. it like it, it it again reinforces the the feeling that, that you are in you are in church, that this is a recording of a service as such, and that you've got you've got a reverend giving remarks. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I want to say here is the pride of a father absolutely bursts through these comments. Yeah, without question. That he, yeah, he he is so proud of, of his daughter there. Yeah, and that is so heartwarming it's but I, I i've written here it just brought a tear to my eye listening to him talk i loved it so then we we finished this this side um with god will take care of you uh written by Seville civil Durfrey martin and was printed in 90 in the 1905 book songs of redemption and praise the, the, this song itself i love how it becomes like a revivalist song at the end and really brings home that live experience of of being in church. Like I really feel like I'm there. Particular this song, I think more so than any other. Um, I feel like I'm there, and and should be clapping along with in the in the pews with with the rest of the congregation. Yeah, and I think James Cleveland really helps provide that sense of of being there and transporting us to the venue into to the into the venue when he says those of you know will take care of you let me hear you say it again and the congregation absolutely bursts out in yeah. joyous rapture <laughs> i've written this anyone not up and dancing in the aisles at the end is an absolute fridge <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that, that would be pure fridge behaviour. <laughs> like, it's wonderful. After a traditional slowed down gospel hymn to then go, all right, let's just have it for a couple of minutes at the end, shall we? It's just ace. Yeah, it, it is so good. And and the only other thing I've written is to, for the only track on the album that ends with a fade out, it, it's quite interesting. I Personally, I'd just like to have heard them go on and on until it finished. I was having a really good time. Yeah, I mean, I, I could have, the, the, the album could, could have ended there and I would have been sound like I've, I've had a lovely time. But that is the end of side three. So we then go into side four, which is a cover. I mean, the, most of these are covers, but this is a, a, a version of Holy Holy written by Marvin Gaye, which was on What's Going On, um, which had come out the, the previous year. And it's a beautiful, I mean, I love, I love Holy Holy anyway. I mean, What's Going On is one of my favourite favorite albums. And it's a beautiful arrangement. With, uh, with the harp and everything, it's oh, wow. Yeah, I um, I love Holy Holy. I love what's going on. I prefer this version. Yeah, I do, it, there's there's something about it. There there is something about it that this, this sounds so. It's an inspirational song, anyway. You know about people coming together to make the world a better place. But the way Aretha belts it out, and she does belt it out. The way the choir. It's quite understated underneath, mm-hmm. and there's the there's the two singers that that are behind her sound almost angelic. This song, the way this arrangement is performed, I love Marvin Gaye's version. I prefer this one. Oh, I, I, I don't think I could split them, but I understand why you've come to that conclusion. So, we then go to "You'll Never Walk Alone." I don't think I really need to explain a huge amount about this song. The Rodgers and Hammerstein song from Carousel, it's fairly well known. I'm going to, um, well, for the benefit of the audience, I'm just going to say the only note that I made on this song, you don't get Aretha singing fucking grand old team, do you? (laughs) I think... um... I think Kevin has just revealed both of our allegiances for Paul Wise. <laughs> uh, no, no, you don't. It's a, it's a beautiful version of, of this song. So I've written it's an absolutely beautiful version, which I'm not sure it's grammatically very sound, actually. But uh, the thing I've written at the top is, again, it is in block capitals under the line. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it, I mean, we we've we have said numerous times during reviewing this album. This is, I mean, this more so than any other. It's a fucking tour de force. Just the power, yeah. the power of her voice here. Yeah. What? Well, so, I, I, not just the power of her voice. Yes, the power of her voice, but the way it's arranged. So, the first couple of verses is just Aretha backed by the piano, and she's belting out those verses but then the choir comes in and it's fucking sorry for those who are religious the amount of swearing we're going through is really going to insult you i'm very sorry it, it, it shows how difficult we're finding to to describe the beauty of this but it just takes it up another level and so any rendition of you'll never walk alone is uplifting and is inspirational this one more than any other that I've heard. And yeah, for obvious reasons, as a Liverpool supporter, 
the Jerry and the Pacemakers version is the closest to my heart. I've got that album on vinyl purely because I wanted you never walk alone. Okay. But Christ alive, this, it's just wonderful. Can I just, I have, I have a slight point to make. So when I was, when I was making, when I was doing my uh, research, I did um, have a look into You Never Walk Alone. And you said the, you know, every version is uplifting. I've not heard the version I'm going to talk about, but apparently Marcus Mumford did it a version. I would oh. not find that uplifting at all because basically um, the musical equivalent of beige doing a cover of it. I don't think that's going to inspire me. We're going to get off piece here because I could go. <laughs> So you've described the Mumfords and Sons as, as beige. That's really kind. Uh, listen, to the listeners, please don't ever ask us to do a Mumford and Sons album on this because we won't. We just won't because no. we'll just give it a zero out of ten because I think we both hate Mumford and Sons. Because that's fucking shite. Yeah, I agree entirely. I should caveat that with all music is subjective, but fuck off, Mumford and Sons. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> So all um, versions of the song are uplifting, apart from the Marcus Mumford, including the including the one that was apparently done with Sir Tom Sir Tom Moore and Michael Ball. I would rather hear that. So Lana Del Rey did a version back end of 2020. That was pretty decent. Yeah, that, that wasn't bad. Anyway, we have but we have we Aretha's have version is boss. Yeah, it's fucking great. Okay, so we then finish the album with Never Grow Old. So it's an old Southern gospel song written by James Cleveland Moore Sr. in 1914. He was inspired by Moore returning to his hometown to preach. And on hearing his father's voice, who had previously led the congregation singing for years and hearing it fail, he knew that he wouldn't hear his father sing for for much longer due to age. And hearing Aretha sing that song with with the context and obviously the words of that song and essentially the the raging against the dying of the light, essentially it's truly spellbound, spellbounding, spellbinding. Wow. Goosebumps when I, when I heard it. Yeah. The lyrics to this song are beautiful, poignant, moving, however you want to describe it. They are. When our work here is done, and the life crown is won, and our troubles and trials are over. All our sorrow will end. All our voices will blend with the loved ones who've gone on before. This is another one where, as I've written, as someone who's not religious, I can relate to. I, I won't go into detail, but I lost a, a very close relative when we were both at a young age. And I found this really moving partly because of that. I think it's a beautiful ending to the album. I think it is Aretha Franklin leading the band, the choir, the congregation, the listening audience in a joyous, rapturous celebration. It's a perfect ending. And the organ part throughout the song is just the cherry on top of the cake. It's great. I mean, I I can't really follow that. Um, you have encapsulated it perfectly. So before we get on to which Tim usually does the does the bits around um, sales and stuff stuff like that, um, I've got a couple I've got a couple of quotes. So 
I'm going to save my best quote for last. So I'll start with Jerry Wexler, the producer. He said, the album relates to religious music in as much the same way as Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel relates to religious art. In terms of scope and depth, little else compares to its greatness. It's not a bad quote, that. Nope. But I can top it. Go. So, Marvin Gaye. Ooh. A man who could sing a bit. He was okay. Yeah. I don't think I'm alone in saying that Amazing Grace is Aretha's singular masterpiece. The musicians I respect the most say the same thing. It's her greatest work. Fuck. <laughs> yep. And the public would agree with Marvin. So, as Kev says, I'll talk some numbers and then and talk a little bit about reviews, as I always do. It's sold over 2 million copies in the US alone, which certified it two times platinum. It is the highest selling live gospel album of all time. It reached number seven on the US Billboard chart. It is Aretha Franklin's most successful album in terms of sales. It won the 1973 Grammy Award for the best soul gospel performance. Just some words from the review. So Kevin has Already read some words from John Landau of Rolling Stones review. Just another quote. Amazing Grace is more a great Aretha Franklin album than a great gospel album. I'm not sure I agree entirely with that. Balls. It's a fucking great gospel album. It, it is both a great gospel album and a great Aretha Franklin album. He goes on to say she plays havoc with traditional styles, but she sings like never before on record. Agreed. A virtuoso display of gospel pyrotechnics done with control and imagination. Again, agreed entirely. Yeah. Uh, in a retrospective review, Ron Wynn from All Music said it is possibly Franklin's greatest ever release in any style. Her voice was chilling, making it seem as if God and the angels were conducting a service alongside Franklin. I think that is really beautifully put. Yeah, that, I, I wholeheartedly embrace that. There's one more quote that I want to read, and it's another retrospective review. If you'll indulge me, it's quite a long one, but I want to read it in full. Sure. Because it annoyed me. This is from Robert, and I apologize if I'm going to read his name wrong, Robert Chris Gauss, 1981 book, Chris Gauss Record Guide, Rock Albums of the 70s. Oh, I know this quote. Because I don't think God's grace is amazing or believe that Jesus Christ is his son, I find it hard to relate to gospel groups as seminal as the Swan Silvertones and Dixie and the Hummingbirds and have even more trouble with James Cleveland's institutional choral style. There's a purity and a passion to this church-recorded double album that I've missed in Aretha, but I still find that the subdued rhythm section, bollocks, he didn't say bollocks, that's my addition, and pervasive call and response conveys a more aimlessness than inspiration. Or maybe I just trust her gift of faith more readily when it's transposed to the secular realm. I mean... Fuck off. Yeah, it's fuck off. Like... Talk about spectacularly missing the point. I, I mean, as as you as you said, like I am someone who's been brought up in a relig religious household. You were you were not, um, but neither of us profess any kind of religious faith. However, we can both be inspired and uplifted by this album. You don't need to believe in God to find to find something in this album. There is beauty throughout it. Exactly. And and any anyone who who just takes a guinea because 
there's a God element. Well, basically, you're a fuckwit. Yeah. Uh, so as there is beauty throughout this album. There is beauty in the performances of all of the artists. So where he says, I have even more trouble with James Cleveland's institutional choral style. What does that even mean? I think James Cleveland and the choir are phenomenal on this record. He has a problem with call and response. Well, that's gospel music, lad. Exactly. Anyone who's any, who's ever seen just a, a snippet of a gospel choir will know that that's kind of the thing a little bit. The subdued rhythm section. How many times have we said that the bass in particular is unbelievable on this album? Yeah, without question. Oh, oh. Uh, look, uh, look. I, I, I think, I think we just move. He's wrong. Yeah, every person can have their opinion, and some people have wrong opinions. His is clearly wrong. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. I had to read that because I wanted you to feel all of the annoyance that I felt when I read that quote. Uh, so in terms of legacy, we talked earlier or we skirted around earlier the documentary film in 2018, but it, it needs to be discussed in more detail. So Kevin, over to you. So the, as, as we said, the, this, the, the album was conceived to have a concert film with it, um, which we said earlier there was, directed by Sidney Pollock. And again, it, earlier on, we mentioned he had no experience of documentary filmmaking. This was important because, unfortunately, Sidney Pollock failed to use clapperboards. So they could not sync the film footage with the sound, so much so that they brought Alexander Hamilton in to try and lip-sync the, the footage. And amongst the, the boxes, when the, the person who subsequently produced it when he got all the material related to this project he found a a receipt where Hamilton had charged for his time to basically try and sync this together and unfortunately it sank into obscurity until he picked up the project so yeah clapperboards it's a really simple concept you'll all have seen footage of a fella stood in front of a camera going take one clap the whole point of a clapperboard is you can synchronize the start and the end of a take. So when the clapperboard claps, take, or sorry, action, whatever, and then cut. Because you've got someone on the camera going, moving the clapperboard, and the microphones pick up the sound of the clapperboard going, clap. To not use a clapperboard, and I'm not involved in the film industry, but even to my rudimentary understanding of audiovisual entertainment, to not use a clapperboard when you are recording a concert film is, I'm sorry, basic. Yeah, it's it's negligence, really. Yes, thank you. Um, so unfortunately, the film was lost for many years. That they could, they just couldn't sync the the two together. Eventually, as to technology developed, it was fa- it, it was possible to sync the two together, but and. I think it was the Telluride um, Film Festival. There was it was planned to have the debut of the fin- of the finished piece, but Aretha blocked its release. Now this was there was some debate over this whether it was uh, related to well, they, for one they couldn't find her contract. I mean, obviously, 
some issues in Warner Brothers in the 70s because they literally couldn't find the fucking contract that Aretha had signed. So there's there's a couple of things that I'd uh, just come in at. So the, the project itself was finished in 2008 and, and the festival, the Telluride Festival that Kevin talks about was in 2015. So seven years went by even before they tried to debut the film. In 2011, Aretha Franklin sued the producer, Alan Elliott, uh, for using her likeness without permission. So Alan Elliott was working on behalf of Warner Brothers, at which point Warner Brothers said, no, she signed a contract. And as Kevin said, where's the contract? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, sorry, I'll let you continue the story. Yeah, sure. So they, they couldn't find the contract. That was then resolved. And then there was some dispute over how much Aretha, want, Aretha wanted paying, basically, for it. So she blocked. She took out an injunction and blocked release of the Telluride Festival. They tried again the next year to release it. It couldn't happen, and it was it was only really after Aretha died that the the film was able to be released after what seemed to be quite a a simple negotiation with um is it was it a niece I, I believe, yes. and the the film was eventually released now. I mean, we, we we both live in the UK, so we were fortunate that the BBC at Christmas um, stuck uh, Amazing Grace on the iPlayer and we both managed to catch it. And my God, as a testament, I mean, the, the album itself as a as a as a record of of, of that performance is is a phenomenal thing. But having watched the actual performance itself and how Aretha works and the crowd and Alexander Hamilton and everything that's going on. It's a beautiful piece of work and it's 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 phenomenal. And I, I urge anyone who has a passing interest in music, not not only Aretha Franklin or anything like that, to seek it out and watch this film because it is a document of a an artist at the the peak of her powers and just the the sheer power and passion within the performance as well. So uh, at the time of recording on the 5th of March 2021, uh, it's no longer available on the BBC iPlayer, but it is available in the UK to Amazon Prime subscribers uh, within your Prime subscription. So you don't need to pay extra to, to rent it at the moment. Whether that changes over time, obviously, I, I don't know. Uh, as Kevin said, watch it. If just watch it, you almost can't listen to the album without watching the film. And I know that sounds weird when the film came out fifty years after the album was released, but watch it. it you, you, I, I assure you, you will not waste your time. Just a couple of quotes I want to read. So from Alan Elliott, who was producing the film, speaking of the delay to releasing it in two thousand and sixteen, which was the year after the injunction that Kevin spoke about. Uh, by this time, he was already in negotiations with Aretha Franklin's niece, Sabrina Owens. But by that time, it was, as Kev said, it was very clear that Aretha was very sick. So Elliot said, we knew she was sick with pancreatic cancer. We agreed the film should be put on hiatus until the family was ready. That was in an interview with the BBC in 2019. In the same interview, Elliot speculated that her initial reluctance to release the film was because she felt that the technical errors by Sidney Pollock meant that she was denied the chance to be a movie star. And that was her whole problem with the release of the movie. Now there is, what is clear is that she saw the movie before her death in 2018. 
there is some debate as to what her reaction to it was. So Alan Elliott himself in the same BBC interview claimed that uh, she loved it. However, Chuck Rainey, who was, as Kev said earlier, the basis for the shows, claimed that he'd been in regular contact with Aretha up to her death. And in an article in the New York Times in 2019, he claimed that she didn't like it at all. Uh, So we will never know, sadly, because Aretha is no longer with us. We'll never know the exact reasons why she resisted so long the release of the film and whether or not she was satisfied with the finished article. But as we just said, as observers and as fans of the music, as an accompanying piece to the album, it is encapsulating. Yeah, it, it's. I, I, I struggle to find the words to describe it. it. As I say, I urge anyone to to seek it out and and watch it because it is a phenomenal piece of work. Even you know, it's just it's it's seeing Aretha performing at at her peak. And if you if you like music, I'm presuming I'm presumably you do because you're listening to this. <laughs> Um, but imagine someone listening to this show going, all they do is talk about music. I'm sick and tired of it. Talk about books. <laughs> I mean, we've had a little bit of film chat. And so, no, like, you know, you, you should seek it out if you haven't seen it before. Um, that's all I can say. So, um, Tim. Best song, worst song. Okay. Um, I said when we were talking about this song that I basically was up dancing. I couldn't stop. And I dare anyone to listen to this and not to just want to get up and dance. Old Landmark. It's just glorious. I, From start to finish, wow. It's joyous. Uh, I mean, like it, it is It is a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Um your, your worst song? It, it, give yourself to Jesus. And it's personal. Uh, as I said at the time, I, it's a bit too preachy for my uh, my beliefs. That's all. It's not a criticism of the song. The arrangement's good. It's performed brilliantly. It's just a bit too religious for what I'm in it for. And that's you can hate me for that. That's just my personal opinion. Fair, fair enough. What about yourself? For, for myself, um, my favourite my favorite song on the album, I mean, there are so, so many different moments and you've, we've mentioned so many of them. I, I think genuinely the, the song that I, I will always, always come back to is How I Got Over. It's just everything about it. It just absolutely blows me away. It doesn't matter how many times I've heard it, it, it still has the same impact the first first time, the hundredth time. It, it's just brilliant. Okay, what's your worst song? So I think I probably agree with you that Give Yourself to Jesus, and it's only because, <laughs> this seems harsh, but it maybe goes on a little bit too long with the preaching. It, it's very hard to find a worse song on this album because... I mean, I would I would be very very harsh if I decided that my worst song on the album was "Remarks" by C.L. Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've had to choose an actual song. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. So, do you have anything else to say about "Amazing Grace" before we go into the scoring? I, I mean, the the clues in the title that's amazing. <laughs> it is. It is. I think the listeners can appreciate. I would hope that we hold both of the albums 
that we've reviewed in this clash in very high regard. Oh god, oh god, yeah. Uh, I think I think the the fact that we've um basically rhapsodied over both of them, the listeners will definitely pick up on. Yeah. Okay, so Without further ado, and as as ridiculous as it may sound after just having spoken about a gospel album, which of these two albums will prevail inside the Ring of Death? So we've got to get to scoring. Where are you going on Folsom Prison? It's really hard. I think on Folsom Prison, I'm going to go a 9 out of 10. It's, and it, the, the only thing I'm really... I'm penalising it for is, is the couple of throwaway songs in the middle, which I don't really dislike. And maybe that the order is a little bit wrong when you go to from Jackson to Give My Love to Rose. Like, um, this is nitpicking on on something that is a phenomenal album and is one of my favourites. Yeah, there's very little I can disagree with there. I love this album. Even the songs that aren't as strong it rattles along at a hell of a pace as we as we said um earlier there are very much some musicians who can who can learn from the fact that all of this was done in 45 minutes yeah exactly and the blend of the up-tempo rockier or rockabilly tracks whatever you want to call them with soulful very dark in some cases ballads is perfect with the exception, as you just said, of one or two either track orders or a couple of tracks that are pretty throwaway. There are very few weak points on this album. I love the way, well, the backing band are just so tight. They sound phenomenal. And that cannot go unsaid. It's a Johnny Cash album, but no, the the band are as much a part of this album's success for me as he is. And as we said, Cash is in his element. It's got the crowd in the palm of his hand. If he'd told them to start a riot there and then, they would have done it. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 as well. And I think you're right. I think I think all I can hold against it is, is those, those couple of silly Jack Clement tracks in the middle that, for me, we could do without. Other than that, and as you said, I can understand why they're there. I can understand why they're there, but for me, they don't work. 9 out of 10. I love it. So we then move on to the scoring for Amazing Grace. Uh, Tim, if you would like to take the lead. So I've really, really struggled to decide between these two albums. There is not a human being ever to have lived that I would rather hear sing than Aretha Franklin. To me, she has the best voice of anyone I have ever heard. And I'll happily have that conversation with anyone, subjective as it is, I know. This is her in all her glory, just as I said about Cash in his element, she is in her element here. She is amongst her congregation. It is, as you said, it is a homecoming to her spiritual home. And me as a person without faith, even I can see so much beauty, so much reverence, so much glory, so much to revere. It's just amazing. So I'm not going to choose between them. Nine out of 10. Sorry. I can't dis- I can't decide here this week. Nine out of ten. Well it's on you. It's on you. Sorry. It's it's on me. So I had a I had a big old think about this. The performance is unreal. The the band are fantastic. And incorporating the element that that I talked about earlier is did the did the album make me feel as though I was there? Fuck yeah, it did. I thought I was in church. 
I thought I was in a in a southern gospel church. I'm gonna have to also take the shit house way out. I cannot split them because the and the only thing the only thing I would punish punish seems uh, too harsh a word. The slightly downgrade amazing grace for is the little preachy bit and give yourself to Jesus. That may be the only the only thing. Yeah, I can't I cannot split them. They are they are both two phenomenal albums by two brilliant artists with great bands with them doing a live performance where you feel as though you're there. These are almost perfect albums. Uh, yeah, I'm going I'm going nine out of ten. I'm going full shit out. Um I cannot split them. Do we have our first draw? We have scored both of these albums 18 out of 20. Yeah, I, I cannot split them. So we we have in our third class failed in our promise in the intro that two albums enter, only one may leave. Because in this case, they're both walking away bloodied, but still very much alive. <laughs> I mean, I would I would use the analogy to say it's like the end of Rocky One, but Rocky actually loses that. <laughs> so. Um, so, so that's a very poor analogy. It's, just it's the a... end of Escape to Victory, which should in fact be called Escape to a Draw because it finishes four. <laughs> I mean, I mean, technically, the Allies should probably uh, be deducted. Like they should lose three. Well, they did because it's, the it's game to be was. Fair, a... They they left the pitch without a referee's permission, which in exactly. So yeah, they they should all have been issued red cards. In which case, Escape to lose. <laughs> Yeah, the the Nazis won three nil um, by a walkover. <laughs> that's the second I'm, second reference to the Nazis on this clash. And, and clearly, that's the true lesson to, to pull from Amazing Grace and at Folsom Prison. No, listen. So the last two clashes, there's been a clear winner. This one, there's just not, and for different reasons. And uh, you may think very differently depending on if you have particular musical tastes. But I think Kevin and I are both people that would pride ourselves on having a very diverse interest in music. And, well, I think we've both said the same thing. It's just two attitudes between these two albums, so we're not going to... It, it would be churlish to, tr- to try and find some flaw or something in, in each album to, to pick one as the winner, because they're both amazing testaments to two amazing artists. Yep. And I, I think that's where we should leave it. What I would say is this means that we, both of these albums go straight to the top of our all-time chart. Uh, so they're both on 18 out of 20, thus uh, replacing All Things Must Pass at the top of the chart, which was on 17 out of 20. Be here now. <laughs> still there. Uh, still. <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> Are we ever going to review an album that is worse than being now. I, I don't know but i i genuinely like i mean again to put to pull the curtain back on um pre-record discussions um i did suggest to him that after having reconsidered it i i actually wanted to downgrade be here now because i got mo- i got progressively more annoyed the more i thought about it well we we both said didn't we that having listened back to that recording that we were surprised we even scored it as high as nine. But but anyway, we're not going to go back over that. So yeah, that's that's it. So, sorry, we have we have failed to come up with a winner today, but that's, never mind, eh? So that takes us on to 
our next clash. It is your pick, so um, please, what is our next clash? Okay, so I had I had us all set for a really good album clash, and then something happened to rock the music world, which completely changed my perspective. So as I said earlier, we are in the 5th of March, 2021. And so we are coming just over a week after the earth shattering news that everyone's favorite French electronica robot head wearing artists, Daft Punk are no more. They have announced their breakup. C'est ne pas. <laughs> ne pas encore le Daft Punk. <laughs> so that means for the next album clash, we are going to do, we are going to pit inside the ring of death, 1997's Homework, which is Daft Punk's debut album, against 1998's debut album by the band Air, Moon Safari. So yes, we are on a French electronica trip next time. C'est la musique de français. <laughs> Music électronique du français. <laughs> J'aime la discothèque. <laughs> Où est le pompelumus? <laughs> uh, yep. So uh, this connection is fairly obvious there, and it's fairly rudimentary. They're both French. They're both electronic. Uh, both debut albums. Um, homework versus Moon Safari. That's what you need to go and listen to for the next clash. I don't know about you, but obviously I've chose it, so I'm really looking forward to it. No, um, it, it's been a long time since I've listened to Moon Safari. I listened to Homework relatively recently, so it, it will be good to go back and uh, re, re-examine them, really. Okay, so I think we are pretty much at the end of this, our third album clash. So uh, as we usually do before we end the shows, Kevin... Uh, do you want to just tell the people how to get in touch with us? So, yes, if you would like to get in touch with us to tell us what you think or suggest any album clashes, um, obviously not involving Mumford, Mumford and Sons, no. you can contact us on Twitter at Clash Album, on Instagram at Clash Album, or you can email us at albumclash at gmail.com. Yep, absolutely. Please get in touch. And as I said, uh, whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts, please subscribe to the show. If you want to leave a a rating and a review, it means an awful lot to us. We really appreciate you listening to us. Hope you're enjoying the show. Recommend it to your mates if you are. And that's been Album Clash. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye.